Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan, and today I will be talking to Piper Hoffman, who is the Senior Director of Litigation at Animal Outlook. And once again, I'll be talking to Jay Schuster, who is an Associate and Senior Animal Welfare Fellow at the Richmond Law Group. They will be both talking about Animal Outlook versus Cook Aquaculture, which is a consumer protection case brought in the Superior Court of the District of Columbia based in allegations of deceptive advertising about the welfare of fish, specifically the salmon raised in Cook's facilities. You may recall seeing some of the footage of the treatment of these salmon when Animal Outlook first released the results of this undercover investigation. And you may also recall having heard about it on our Hen House, our sister podcast, when we had Erin Wing, the undercover operative who took that footage on to tell us about it back on episode 587. I really love that we are now staying on top of the next development in this case, this consumer protection lawsuit that is using the information gathered in that investigation to belie some of the claims made about how these poor fish are treated humanely. Before we get to the interview, I'd just like to quickly ask for your support in helping us keep Our Hen House, which produces the Animal Law Podcast along with the Our Hen House Podcast going. And if you can help out, please go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate. There you can join our flock for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you could afford or comfortable with. And while you're at it, if you're not already a listener of Our Hen House, which is, as I mentioned, our other podcast, please check it out. One recent interview that you may find interesting is episode 606, which includes a wonderful interview with John Adenatire, who teaches the philosophy of law at Queen Mary University of London. He discusses his scholarship, which is still in progress, regarding the theoretical basis for including animals as rights holders in the law and how current theories of justice need to shift. It's really fascinating stuff. And you also won't want to miss my interview with Elmira Tanner of Direct Action Everywhere. That's on episode 605 regarding the city of Berkeley's recent moves toward reducing and working toward eliminating the purchase of animal derived products. Unbelievable stuff, right? All right, let's get to this interview. Piper Hoffman brings more than 20 years of legal experience to bear as the senior director of litigation at National Farmed Animal Advocacy Group Animal Outlook. Vegetarian since childhood and vegan since the 20th century. I like that way of putting it. Uh, She earned her JD cum laude from Harvard Law School, where she successfully lobbied the school to offer its first animal law class. After a federal clerkship, Piper began her animal law career as a staff attorney at the Animal Legal Defense Fund. She has taught animal law at New York City Law School since 2014, and she is especially proud of her past contributions to our hen houses, website, podcast, and much missed TV show. I'm glad that she misses it. I'm reading from her bio. I miss it too. Uh, Jay Schuster is an associate and the senior animal welfare legal fellow at Richmond Law Group. Jay has represented nonprofits and consumers in numerous cases against large food companies, including Tyson Foods, Kraft Heinz, and Unilever. And they will both be joining me right after this. The North American Animal Law Conference, in collaboration with the Canadian Animal Law Conference Scholars Track, will showcase animal law and policy scholarship that is conducive to deeper thought and consideration of a particular topic. The North American Animal Law Conference features keynote-style format presentations, 
by prominent scholars from across North America and a culminating evening panel of renowned experts. The speakers and panel will have ample opportunity for live, scholarly, moderated Q&A. The conference, which is an initiative of the Brooks Institute for Animal Rights Law and Policy, is designed to attract scholarly peers and will expose and inspire others to scholarship and excellence in theory and practice. It is a one-day virtual event, Friday, October 1st. Registration for the North American Animal Law Conference will also include the following two-day Canadian Animal Law Conference. More information can be found at thebrooksinstitute.org slash NAALC hyphen 2021. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Piper and Jay. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. So nice to have you here. This is a crazy case. You guys have to be really nice because it took me a lot of time just to figure out what what the hell is going on here. But it started with the facts, of course, and the facts are pretty gruesome and have a lot to do with um, animal. The way you found out about a lot of the facts was from Animal Outlook's um, investigation. But let's start off with the first question, just the big picture of what is cook aquaculture? What is it and what's the nature of its business? Sure, I can start with that one. So Cook Aquaculture is one of the world's largest aquaculture companies. They sell a wide range of what they might call uh, seafood products, but everything from fishes to other sorts of aquatic animal products as well. And yeah, they're one of the biggest in the world and one of the biggest in, in North America as well. Yeah, I have to say when I started reading these papers, I just thought this must be a very small outfit because it seemed so haphazard. But yeah, then I read further and I found out they were huge. And if I understand correctly, and it's not that easy to understand, this lawsuit specifically relates to true North salmon. And what is that and how does it relate to Cook Aquaculture? So uh, Cook Aquaculture is the name of the company that sells a, a wide variety of different products. And True North brand is one of different one of a bunch of different brands that they have. But that's the brand that this specific case is focusing on. And this particular brand, and we'll get into this in more detail, is marketed very heavily with various uh, sustainability representations, which the case is about. And I don't want to start out with all this boring stuff, but hopefully people are still with us. And we just need to kind of get it out of the way because it's so central to some of the difficulties you have had so far in litigating this case. And I think difficulties that lawyers do run into in litigating cases. And can you explain kind of the overview of all the different entities that are involved in cook aquaculture and how how it was for you trying to f- kind of sort them out and figure out what's what? Yeah, sure. So in every lawsuit, one thing that we've learned is that any company that may be selling a product, it's not as simple to just look at the brand name and then sue that brand name. You don't sue a brand name, you sue the actual company. And there may be, with the way that modern corporations work, they may have dozens, literally dozens of different legal entities that are involved in different aspects of their business. And here, it was particularly challenging to try to figure out what entities are actually involved in the marketing and sale of the products and the production of the products. And we tried to figure out the outset of the case, you know, which of these Cook entities, as and the the company itself refers to these various entities as the Cook family of companies. We tried to figure out at the beginning uh, to focus on the actual entities that are really centrally involved in both the advertising, sale, and production of specific True North products at issue, and we we did our best to figure that out, and then immediately Cook responded saying, oh, these various entities aren't actually the ones that are involved in the marketing sale and production of the products. 
And then we said, okay, uh, well, if you want to give us some further information, we'd be happy to to work with you on that. And we do this in every case. We often name entities, holding companies, et cetera, that we find out, oh, the company says, yeah, they're actually not involved. It's actually this entity instead that's involved. And we move forward accordingly. But here, they said, we're not going to tell you how to sue our client. And you have to go figure it out. And so we did our best. We filed, we did some further research, filed an amended complaint. And then they made the same argument again, that none of the entities that we actually sued are actually responsible here, pointing the finger at every which way to basically end up in a, a situation where they're basically claiming nobody's responsible. And so then we had to move forward with the litigation and I'll probably stop there and, and let you figure out. how. To- yeah, because we will get into more details <laughs> about that. But I just did want to give the overview because I think that's one of the reasons when I started looking at it, I thought this was a small outfit because it was such a mess. <laughs> it was so hard to figure out. But apparently they're very big and very complicated. And it's hard to believe that this tangled web was not woven with some deliberation. All right, but getting to the more to the fish-related issues, they like to appeal to their consumers on the basis that they are very ethical. And I think that really demonstrates that there are serious consumer concerns about the welfare of fish and the, the environmental considerations about fishing. Like, they wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't an issue for consumers. So I think it's True North. I'm going to stick to the idea that it's True North is the entity that is selling or... We'll get into whether it's, because <laughs> even that is contested, salmon. And what do they say about how great their salmon products are, aside from, you know, how they taste? Sure. So on the packaging of some of the products themselves, they actually use the term sustainably farmed. And moreover, they actually use the image and likeness of Martha Stewart and the Martha Stewart brand to further represent that this is a product that you should be proud of that is sustainable and you know family friendly and they use her endorsement to further represent that these are sustainable products and they further define this sustainable language with more specific representations on their website and and elsewhere to explain that sustainability to them means everything from having high environmental standards and they use words like stay true to the environment and their passion for the environment They also make naturally raised claims where they say that they're naturally raised salmon or raised on a natural diet from sustainable sources, and then even go further to specifically say that they use high animal welfare standards. And some of the language they use is optimal care and consideration of animal welfare. So they really cover a wide variety of issues uh, under the sustainably farmed bucket. Yeah, it's it's really crazy. I was particularly impressed with the fact that they said high animal welfare standards because apparently they don't even they don't even go to that place where oh fish fish don't have feelings, fish aren't sentient. They kind of acknowledge that fish are entitled to high animal welfare. All right, so those are the claims. So now gets to let's get to the truth. And and I know Piper, you're going to tell us a lot about this because some of this information, maybe not all of the environmental information, but certainly the animal welfare information that this suit is based on is based a lot on Animal Outlook's investigations. So can you kind of tell us what you know about these claims and what's wrong with them? Sure. In 2019, Animal Outlook sent an investigator to a Cook salmon hatchery in the state of Maine. And this was actually the first undercover expose of salmon aquaculture in the U.S. And it was just two years ago which tells you something about how much this entire industry is operating in the shadows. What our investigator documented on video was really disturbing. 
there are hundreds of thousands to millions of fish at this one cook hatchery that our investigator was at. And over the course of a few months there, she recorded scenes of people violently slamming fish against concrete tanks, stomping on their heads, handling them so roughly that their their spines, especially when they were babies, handling them so roughly as babies that they would break their spines and then their spines would grow back in deformed ways that looked like they had to be incredibly painful. They would throw these fish as though they were basketballs and try to knock them out of the air and do trick shots. And if the fish fell on the ground, sometimes they'd leave them there. Sometimes they would try to throw them again and fail again. Sometimes they would stomp on their heads and the fish still wouldn't necessarily be dead. When they were trying to cull fish, they often wound up, if they could ever get their aim right, they wound up piling the fish in dry buckets so that the fish died either by suffocation or by being crushed under a pile of other dying and dead fish. There's the video also shows that they did painful procedures to fish who were not adequately anesthetized. So they would vaccinate fish and clip their fins for identification and make an effort to anesthetize the fish beforehand, but the fish would still be thrashing around at the time that they were vaccinated and their fins were clipped, which is a sign that they were inadequately stunned. And there's a worker on our video who says about vaccinating that if they're thrashing around, he says, quote, once the needle's in them and they flop, that tears a fucking huge hole in them. And then another worker said that the vaccinating stresses them out so that some of them die off and it takes a week before some of them start eating again. So we're talking about really stressful, painful, upsetting treatment and procedures and practices that were going on in this facility that that we have on video. Yeah, it, it that's a horrible story, and you have brought it to life. And if people want to know more about it, this is Erin Wing's um, investigation, right? That's right. Yeah, and we had her on the Our Hen House podcast, I don't know, maybe six months ago. So if people want to know more about this, not just about all the horrible things that happened to fish, but about the process of the, of the investigation, check out that interview. But I also want to talk a little bit about I mean, obviously, their animal welfare claims, high animal welfare standards are nonsensical. What about their environmental claims? Sure. So I can speak to that a bit. And Piper, then perhaps you could jump in as well. So we fundamentally, you know, our, our focus, the complaint alleges that the whole nature of the fish farming practice that they're using, which is called open net pen aquaculture, is fundamentally not environmentally sustainable and that it causes all sorts uh, of different issues for for animals, for the animals that are in, actually being farmed, but also for the surrounding environment. Because what these pens are, are basically their factory farms are just floating in the open water that are connected to the water all around them. So fishes may be in, in nets, 
But the water that they are defecating in, the food that they're eating, which may be treated with all various uh, sorts of chemicals, all of that is just leaching out into the surrounding environment. And sometimes the fish themselves can also escape and threaten native species of fish in the surrounding environment. So I'll stop there and see Piper if you want to fill in some further gaps there. I do. So first, I want to distinguish between two different kinds of aquaculture, and Cook does both of them. One is inland aquaculture, and that applies to the salmon hatchery where Aaron captured the undercover video that I was just describing. Those fish were not in open net pens. They were in concrete tanks in an inland facility, which doesn't mean that they didn't affect the waterways because on video we show that some of the salmon somehow escaped the tanks and wound up in a trench that fed into a river. So there could still be some of those concerns that Jay was talking about. This was just a hatchery. When the fish were sent to grow out, to grow larger and get ready for slaughter, then they would be in open net pens in a different facility. Another environmental aspect of aquaculture that I want to emphasize is that it does not actually reduce the harm to the ocean as an ecosystem that fishing causes. I've sometimes heard people say that aquaculture is a better alternative to fishing because it's not taking fish out of the wild, but more than half of the wild fish that are caught are fed to farmed fish in aquaculture facilities. So everything is still interconnected. And there are a lot of chemicals used in this as well. Is that right? There are a lot of chemicals. There are in the hatchery, they were putting formaldehyde into the water. There were whatever substances they were vaccinating them with, whatever they were using to clean, all of that goes into the water. The complaint alleges that not only are they using those substances, but they're also using antibiotics and sedatives. And then the feed itself is uh, contains artificial preservatives, which have been found to cause environmental harms when, when that feed is sitting in the water, those chemicals leach out into the environment. And the, the, the hatchery that is involved, I mean, they have a number of facilities, but the hatchery that is involved in this case is in Maine. Is that right? Right. That was the hatchery where the investigation took place. So the other evidence that you gathered prior to filing your lawsuit had to do with uh, consumers. And the case that you brought was under a consumer protection statute. So you have to bring evidence that consumers care about this to some extent, not just that we care about it. Can you tell us about what kind of evidence you were able to gather and what it shows? Sure. And I think the first thing I want to say, though, is, is going back to something you said earlier, Marianne, which is that we think that the, uh, the fact that they are representing on their packaging and all over their website, making these environmental claims extensively and these animal welfare claims at length shows that they know consumers care about these issues. But beyond that, yes, we do cite to specific survey evidence, both about the 
how consumers interpret these types of claims. And then the other thing, materiality, the fact that consumers actually care about these claims. So there, I'll just run through a few of these surveys that we point to, but there are various um, consumer reports has some great surveys that show that consumers believe that natural when used on food products means the majority of consumers think that means no antibiotics or other drugs were used at any point in the process. 67% of consumers believe that when they see the phrase no antibiotics, that that means not just that there are no antibiotics in the final product, but that they're never used at all. And that, that's another claim that Cook makes in some of their materials. And then they also it also shows that consumers interpret the word sustainability and, and variations on that to include everything from the use of hormones and drugs to helping the environment, which seems obvious to folks, but also caring about fish welfare themselves, that itself in this context. So there's research that shows that consumers specifically, when they see sustainable in this context, think that it means fishes are, are treated well. And then on the materiality side, there are other studies that show specifically consumers are willing to pay more for ecologically sustainable products and that they think that term actually has meaning. And, and then finally, I would just point to uh, beyond the actual consumer research, uh, we always cite to the FTC's own determination and various warning letters they sent out to companies that make sustainable claims. They basically have held that those, that sustainable claims are material to consumers. And so we have that additional support, not just from consumer perception research, but from the main federal agency that regulates advertising. You know, this is a bit of an aside, but I can remember years ago first hearing about the idea of using consumer protection litigation for animals, that the idea that we would have to gather this this survey evidence and all of this evidence about consumer protections was very onerous because, I, I mean, I would guess that if you were going to bring a lawsuit, you would have to get that evidence yourself and it was going to be very expensive. Would you say that there's just a lot more out there, out in the ether now, making these cases a lot easier to bring about consumer perceptions about animal welfare and environmental concerns? Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of these, I think the vast majority of the surveys we cite to are, you know, from within the past, you know, five or six years. And so trying to do this before all these surveys came out, both on the materiality side, willingness to pay, actual consumer interpretation of those claims, it would have been much more challenging and frankly expensive for groups to try to actually do their own research before they went into court. Yeah, no, it was always uh, thought to be like onerously expensive to bring these lawsuits. So that's really good news and another sign of progress. All right. So that brings us to the lawsuit, I think. You brought these lawsuits under the DC Consumer Protection Statute, which is everybody's favorite statute. And all right. I don't want to get into all the complications of who's who within Cook, but I think you brought lawsuits against three separate entities. Is that right? And can you kind of tell us what what your causes of action were under this statute? Yeah. So we initially brought the suit, I think it was against three different entities, and it ultimately expanded to, I think we're up to five now, after doing some further research in light of what we talked about earlier with trying to understand exactly which entities are doing what. But we brought, um, we basically allege that all of them are engaged in a common scheme to defraud DC consumers in violation of the DC CPPA, the Consumer Protection Procedures Act. And it's a false advertising statute that overall is modeled after the FTC Act. It's, it's generally similar to false advertising and consumer protection statutes in other states. But in many ways, it actually goes beyond what many other states would prohibit under their analogous consumer protection statutes. It's 28-3905-K1, is C, right? 
Is that right? Does that sound right? Yeah. So that section of the statute, which we refer to as you know, the K-1C section as it relates to standing, is specifically confers the ability on nonprofits to have a private right of action to bring a consumer protection claim under the statute. And so as we all know painfully well in the animal law world, getting standing to bring our claims is, is very challenging. And the, there's no exception in this context either, where ordinarily, in order to bring a consumer protection claim, you need to actually be a consumer that was directly injured that bought the product. But DC, they decided that they wanted to have broader protection that um, where you don't need to be somebody that purchased the product in order to enforce the law. And you don't need to necessarily be the attorney general of the jurisdiction either, which is the main other way that consumer protection law gets enforced. Here, they basically allow nonprofits to act as, as private attorneys general to enforce the provisions of the, of the consumer protection statute. And specifically, they provide, there, there are two key provisions that provide very clear paths for standing for nonprofits that meet various requirements. And K1C is the section of the statute that, among other things, and most importantly in our case, allows for nonprofits that test a product, test or evaluate a given product for what they call household or family purposes to be able to have standing to bring suit. And we can talk more about the testing that was done here if, if that would be helpful. Well, just briefly tell us, because I think it's interesting that that Animal Outlook is seeking standing based on, on testing. So can you just briefly tell us about, about what kind of testing was done? Sure. So the testing that we did here was actually testing the product, the, the final product for residues of ethoxyquin which is the artificial preservative and feed additive that I mentioned earlier is added to the actual salmon feed. And it turns out that you can actually find that in the final product of a lot of different salmon products. And it's actually an indicator that one, the fish was farmed, if you can find that, and two, that it was farmed uh, using ethoxyquin as a feed additive, which then tells you, among other things, that they're using this environmentally harmful uh, contaminant in their supply chain. Now, once you achieve standing... If you do, uh, based on this, the fact that the statute gives a cause of action to people who have tested, does that mean that you can litigate any factual situation or cause of action that comes within the consumer protection statute? So our view is that it should be generally related to the testing that was conducted. But yeah, I think that there's not a whole lot of case law about exactly how far and wide you can address issues beyond the specific matter that the testing was related to. Well, let's say this, can you can you argue animal welfare claims and deceit about animal welfare claims, even though your testing just revealed, I mean, a testing could hardly reveal animal welfare violations, but you say so your testing just revealed this, the presence of this chemical. Yeah. So our position is that that's still fundamentally related to the broader sustainability claims at issue here. And so that would fall within the scope of the standing conferred by the testing that was conducted here. That's a real interesting issue, and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. All right, so let's get to the lawsuit, which has, hasn't gone very far, but it's already gotten unbelievably complicated about like what don't seem like super complicated issues. And we don't often get to discuss service on the podcast. It's not often an issue in cases, but it's definitely an issue here. And so the first thing that happened, I think, after you filed was a motion to quash based on allegedly defective service. I don't think it's called a motion to quash in New York, but that's, you know, maybe it's called that in, in D.C. I'm not I'm not quibbling with that. I know it's called that some places. I think it's called a motion to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction in New York, but nobody cares about that. But when I first saw a motion to quash, I was like, there was a subpoena, which is 
the only thing I've ever heard the word quash related to. All right. So first of all, they argued that your summons was improper, just that the summons itself. Can you explain that and how the court resolved it? Yeah. And I should say, this is really my first time dealing with this as well. Even though we've sued many companies for false advertising in this space, it's very rare that you actually have a major business that tries to fight over something as simple as service, especially when there's no question that they know exactly what's going on. We're working with opposing counsel and all of this. But yeah, so what they argued is that we we filed an amended complaint and then served the amended complaint with the summons that was initially issued in the case. They're saying we should have gotten a second summons for this amended complaint that we had filed and served that with all of the papers that we initially served on them. And so that they're saying that because we didn't get a new summons, the service was invalid. It's kind of like it's kind of like Bleak House, like people having this impression th- that the law is just this whole bunch of unbelievably complicated rules that if you just make a little mistake, you have to start all over again. And even though there are a whole lot of really complicated rules, they're not quite that, it's not quite that unforgiving. All right. So the court got rid of that in a short shrift, but their bigger argument was that you served the wrong person. Can you can, tell us a little bit about how, you, I, I believe the company is in Canada, You can tell us a little bit more about it. So how do you go serving somebody in Canada? It's not easy serving anyone that is abroad. And when you are trying to affect service on an entity that's not in the United States, you need to go through additional procedures in compliance with something called the Hague Convention, which is an international treaty that governs service of legal process around the world. And so in order to comply with that, I don't want to get into all the details there, but we had no, to go. No, please don't. Please don't. <laughs> yeah. So, it, but it, eventually, the important thing to know is that it, we ended up actually having a law enforcement officer in Canada that was designated to serve the papers on these Canadian entities, and they did so. And they went in and they left the the papers with. They left the papers with the director of global analytics for Cook Aquaculture Inc. and. It's interesting because what Cook then argued is that he was only the director of one of the legal entities that we wanted to serve. He didn't have the authority to accept service for that entity or any of the other entities. And he was carrying in boxes of pizza and so didn't even look like he should have been (laughs) the sort of person that could have the authority to accept service of process. My favorite argument. In Canada, like, does carrying pizza mean mean that you're just a useless nothing and, and can't have a good job? <laughs> not, not quite, but I guess the argument and what, what this turns on is different jurisdictions have different requirements as to who can be, who has the authority to accept service and or when uh, service will actually be deemed to be effective. And the two standards could be actual authority to accept service, so they've been kind of legally designated by the entity to be able to accept service. And then the other standard could be apparent authority. And that just means somebody who um, reasonably appears to be the, the type of person who should be able to accept service on behalf of a company. For example, someone with the name director in their title. If they're served, then that should that the court will treat that as being sufficient for, for service. And that's the standard that we argue um, applies under New Brunswick law, which is the province where these entities were based. And I assume the court agreed with you. Yes, the court did agree with us and also, I think, was amused or frustrated uh, with the pizza box argument. (laughs) 
Always, always not a great idea to start off by pissing off the judge, but you know, whatever. Everybody has their litigation techniques. All right. So there was that, that took care of service. You've managed to start a lawsuit, which was harder than you imagined it was going to be. And there was, then there was a motion to dismiss. This was a pre-answer motion to dismiss. Is that right? That's right. All right. I really don't understand this part. So can we deal with the personal jurisdiction argument first? I think I think that's a little reverse order, but it makes more sense to me that way. Sure. Because I just don't understand the standing argument, and you're going to have to explain it to me. But I think setting the scene with the personal jurisdiction argument is a good place to start. And this is not personal ju- jurisdiction based on lack of service. It's personal jurisdiction based on, all right, get ready for me- remembering Long's law school. For those of you who don't litigate, we're talking about long arm statutes here. Can you tell us about the D.C. long arm statute and how that can bring in and confer personal jurisdiction on people from other places? Yeah, and there's nothing really special about it. It's like every other state, if you are actually doing business in the jurisdiction, if you're selling products, for example, within the jurisdiction, then D.C. asserts its right to be able to exercise its legal authority over you. And that's the case, you know, in every state, to my knowledge. Um, and there's nothing special about what's going on here. Yeah, actually, there were. I do remember taking civil procedure, and that there were a lot of complicated issues here. But this was not one of them. If you're transacting business in a place, you can get sued there, which only makes sense. So you just asserted that they're transacting business in D.C. because they sell their products there. So let's go through their argument, if you can, of the number of reasons why. I guess they said they were not transacting business in in D.C. Yeah, and so it gets extremely complicated because there are five different entities (laughs) and they have a different argument for each different entity as to why those entities are not transacting business in the district. And for some of them, they're claiming that they don't sell any products in the district. Some of them, they're claiming they sell only a very small amount of products in the district. Some of them, they're claiming they sell, they don't sell any products and they don't do any advertising that reaches a district. Others, it's they are advertising, but that advertising is, isn't specifically targeted to the district. And so the, it slightly varies from, from entity to entity. But the overall thrust is that they're saying no individual cook entity on its own engaged in sufficient activities, whether it's sales or advertising, to warrant the DC to, to basically yeah allow the DC government to exercise jurisdiction over them. They basically are saying they couldn't have reasonably expect to be hailed into court based on the minimal amount that of of activities that each individual entity engaged in. Now you presumably had some reason to believe that they were transacting business in the district before you started this lawsuit. Can you tell us what that is? Yes. Yeah, so there are we we know from that certain stores are selling their products in the district. Um, that multiple <laughs> different stores are selling them. You can call them up on the phone and say, I, "Can I get can I get some True North salmon?" And they will say yes, and you can buy it from them. <laughs> so someone is uh, is selling the products there. And then we found out further through this litigation process, they it started to come out slowly that yes, certain of the entities actually are currently selling the products there. Or they did sell the products there, and then, but for those entities, they're claiming, oh, it's such a small amount, or they've stopped, and therefore, because it's so small, or because they're not doing it anymore, they shouldn't be allowed to be held accountable for the sales that are occurring in DC. Which has this really strange upshot because it means that nobody can be accountable for any harms that results related to the sales of these products in the district, at least as far as we can tell. 
Yeah, no, that would seem to do it. It would be definitely in their favor. I think they also said they they actually sell their products to a distributor who then distributes them in DC. Is is that anywhere an issue? So, and again, I hate to keep saying this, but it depends on the entity. So some of them have, they claim, have sold directly into DC, but they say that others of them oh, have okay. only sold to distributors that then sell in DC. But you can imagine this is an issue that comes up with in DC very often because it's a small city. And so lots of major, lots of products that are sold in DC are not, are brought in by some kind of third party distributor, not the original manufacturer. Maybe they get shipped, a bunch of products get shipped into Baltimore and then get sent out to other surrounding, you know, jurisdictions from there. And so the DC courts have made very clear that you can't escape liability if you are selling to a regional distributor that can predict that is predictably going to be selling into the DC market. All right. And so if I've covered all of the issues, and I'll tell you, going through these papers was not a treat. So I might have missed some stuff. But what did the court hold here? Court held that the products are at least at this early stage, that if we accept the allegations and the complaint as true, then, then that means that uh, we, the case needs to proceed because we've at least plausibly alleged the products are sold there. And the court has held, yeah, effectively uh, with the information that they have right now, may, it's a question for discovery to to further hash out the exact scope of who, which entity is doing what here. Yeah, which brings up the other issue of like, aside from the fact that you have a lot of facts that that we're talking about a pre-answer motion to dismiss. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're bringing up all these factual arguments at a at a at a place where they couldn't possibly be. The court would have no way to determine who was telling the truth. So yeah, there's a there's a lot wrong here, and that brings us to the standing argument. If it is a standing argument, I don't really understand it. It seems to be based on basically the same allegations that they were no longer selling the products in the district. And therefore, there's no standing because there can't be redressability since, and I quoted this, the court cannot issue an injunction to order someone to stop doing something they have never done. Is that a standing argument? I guess it is a species of a standing argument. That's that's how I understand okay. it, that they're claiming that the conduct's not redressable. Redressability is an element of a requirement for standing, and therefore, you don't have standing. But yeah, it's not, you know... At the end of the day, the argument is is a, just a different way of kind of making the same point that they make, I think, with regards to the personal jurisdiction argument. And it turns on the same sorts of facts. Right. So the court held that there was standing, um, at least at, you know, this, at this juncture. Another argument that they made, I don't even know whether this, I, I just saw it in the papers and, and I thought it was an interesting one. They are, and you might not even notice this one because there's at least 10 million arguments in here. They, they also argue that the relief sought is so broad in joining, because the court would be enjoining internet statements, and these statements go worldwide, that, that the court poss- couldn't possibly have the authority to do that, which would mean that no court anywhere could ever enjoin anything on the internet, no matter how untrue it was. It was a clever one. I'm glad you picked up on that. And, and I think for us, the answer is very simple, which is, well, then don't sell the products in D.C., if you don't want to be held accountable under DC law, then you don't get to profit off of the sales of your products in DC. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Look for jurisdictions that don't have strong consumer protection laws and, and do business there. That makes sense. All right. There was this final tiny argument of forum nonconvenience. Can you just explain that and how that uh, and the resolution to that? Yeah. So I mean, they're they're basically arguing that DC because you know even if. 
maybe there's no legal bar to proceeding here. There's no constitutional prohibition on standing grounds or on due process grounds to allow the case to proceed in D.C. The amount of the the relevant facts, the issues are still, it's so they were so minimal. The acts and occurrences in D.C. were so minimal that as a matter of convenience, the case shouldn't actually be tried there and it should be tried elsewhere. And the, the court didn't go for that argument either. Um, yeah, because where else could you litigate it? It's D.C. law. Exactly. The D.C. specific consumer protection statute. And of course, the D.C. Superior Court is the best court to be able to resolve the application of D.C. law to products sold to D.C. consumers. Now, I understand that there has just been another event in the case. Can you tell us about that and also talk about what next steps are? Sure. So the defendants have actually filed a motion for reconsideration, essentially arguing that this decision was a bad decision and that the court made a bunch of mistakes that the court needs should now address by granting their motion for reconsideration and basically ruling differently than the way the court just ruled. And so we're going to now have to brief that motion and deal with those issues. Do you think this is a deliberate attempt to just, uh, you know, kind of paper the the opposition and, and just force you to do an enormous amount of work on a case that, you know, is, is basically being financed by a not-for-profit? I'm not going to weigh in on the exact intentions of our, our adversaries, but just to say that from the very beginning of this case, as we discussed, from, you know, from refusing service to basically, they, they've just taken uh, every opportunity to try to uh, obstruct the litigation from moving forward. And this does seem like another instance of this type of conduct, which we find unfortunate. Yeah. And like I said, it's an interesting way to start litigation by pissing off the judge, which I'm sure she's even far more pissed off now after that motion for reconsideration. So uh, we'll be excited to see next steps. I mean, we're in very early days in this case, and I'm just excited it's in your hands. But in the meantime, Piper, there's some other uh, attempts some of them legal or legal related or an attempt to use the law in, in some new ways regarding Animal Outlook's attitudes towards uh, aquaculture. And could you tell us about that? Yeah. So after the investigation, Animal Outlook went to the state of Maine and asked that it investigate the Cook facility in Maine and enforce Maine's laws that protect animals. This would just be a basic animal cruelty law, right? The, not a specific law about aquaculture, but you're asking them to enforce right. the animal cruelty law. Right. Just general laws. There are The point of this story, which you just predicted, is that there really is so little specific laws or regulations that relate to aquaculture. And what the state of Maine said in this case is that there was actually no agency in the state that was accountable for enforcing the animal cruelty law to fish in aquaculture facilities. In fact, there was no agency even responsible for promulgating regulations to enforce the animal cruelty law against aquaculture facilities. So the state itself said, yeah, we have this anti-cruelty law, it applies to animals, it applies to fish, they suffer and feel pain, but we can't enforce it. So what they did was one government official went to investigate the hatchery where we captured the video. And he documented some troubling things, 
But he had a problem in that there were no state regulations for him to judge the facility against. There's, there's this anti-cruelty law that says things about no extreme pain or torment or that living conditions have to be humanely clean, but there was no standards. So what this official did was turn to industry and said, hey, why don't you regulate yourself? Which, of course, brings me back to the seminal Law Review article that Marianne co-authored with David Wolfson titled, Foxes in the Hen House. Aww. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank they, you. Thank you, Piper. Love that article. They were taking the standards that an industry group had written and adopted. And this is a group that Cook was a member of. And the group said, these are the practices that Cook and other com aquaculture companies need to meet. And we've inspected Cook and they meet them. And so the main state official said, okay. So we didn't stop there. What we're doing now is collecting signatures on a petition that will require the, the state government in Maine to initiate rulemaking proceedings. There's a law in Maine that if 150 registered state voters sign a petition, the government is required to initiate rulemaking. And the rulemaking that we're petitioning for is, first of all, to explicitly designate an agency to be accountable for the welfare of fish in aquaculture, which you would think wouldn't be necessary since it's already covered by statute but it is. The second piece that we're asking for through this petition is that that designated agency then go ahead and promulgate policies and procedures that aquaculture facilities have to follow to protect the welfare of farmed fish. So this brings up, I mean, this is a very vague memory, but Maine has sort of an interesting animal cruelty scheme, doesn't it? It does have, unlike most states, it, it actually does have regulations that define how, how animals can be treated in various industries. So is that right? And if so, are you just asking them to just apply that regular policy to this other industry, which they have already admitted is covered by the law? What they say they need to do is promulgate best management practices, BMPs, which would be specific to aquaculture and to fish. And they don't have those. There are no BMPs from any other industry or species that would apply to fish in aquaculture. So it, under their animal cruelty scheme, an agency has to act to promulgate those BMPs. Yeah, it's kind of similar to the federal scheme and, and different than a lot of animal animal cruelty laws. So that is a very interesting situation. And they really are, well, I don't know what will happen, but it seems like they're a little bit on the spot. I mean... Well, once, once we get 150 signatures... Yeah. That, that is an exciting thing to look forward to. If any of our listeners are registered to vote in Maine or know people who are registered to vote in Maine you can contact us at info at animaloutlook.org. We are still collecting the signatures for that petition. And we're also interested in having other organizations sign on to support it. That sounds great. And uh, 
you know, when I when I first saw this, I had kind of forgotten how Maine is different, and they have this kind of quasi regulatory scheme in their in their cruelty law. And I was just thinking that you were asking the local prosecutor to invoke the cruelty law. Is that another possibility aside from going to the agencies? We asked everyone. Uh, we we went to the prosecutor. We went to the police. We went to the humane officers, and we went to the agency that we think should be accountable, which is the Department of Agriculture, Conservation, and Forestry. They have an animal welfare program, and it was the director of that program who wound up conducting the investigation himself because all of the investigators were otherwise occupied. And then even his investigation had to be stalled because something else came up that was a higher priority. So there's certainly a question about whether resources are going to be allocated to effectively enforce even the laws that already exist, let alone these best management practices that we're petitioning for. All right. Well, this should be uh, two really interesting things to keep an eye on here, both in fairly early days. And I'm just so excited to see all this work being done on the welfare of fish. It's really great. So thanks so much for doing it. And thanks so much for sharing it with everybody today. You have made an incredibly obscure amount of reading into a fairly clear uh, story. Marianne, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We'll be back next month with a new show. And thank you to Piper and Jay for sharing their thoughts and expertise with us. Thank you to Jen Riley and Jarab Gleckel for their help in producing the podcast. In the meantime, if you like what you hear, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcatcher. Consider leaving us a good review on Apple Podcasts. And if you are able, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at ourhenhouse.org. And thank you so much for tuning in.